All right, turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 21. Revelation 21. Last week, we saw the description of the new heaven and new earth, and it mentioned the holy city. Well, this morning, as we continue in Revelation 21, we see John's description of the new Jerusalem itself. And as we dig into this, we will see that it's a description of the church. It describes things that are true in principle already and will continue to become more fully realized in the church as time goes on. And I think that the great value of this description in Revelation 21 that we're going to see today is that it gives us a peek into how God himself views the church. It describes what Jesus' vision for the church is. And that will tell us something of how we should view ourselves and how we should live in this world as the bride of Christ, the church. So let's read our text beginning in verse 9 of Revelation 21 and we will finish the chapter. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and at the gates 12 angels, and on the gates the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and walls. The city lies foursquare, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. He also measured its wall, 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. The wall was built of jasper, while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel, The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations." But nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Well, we have in these verses a description of the new Jerusalem. Last week, as we looked at the new heavens and new earth, 
We saw that the New Jerusalem is describing the church. And we'll see that again this morning in more detail. But it's important to realize here at the outset that these verses are not primarily talking about something in the future. They're describing the present age. In symbolic form, they're describing what is true of the church. John's describing things that are already true in principle, but he presents them kind of in an ideal form, as if they've already completely matched this description. But remember, the kingdom is in progress. It's growing. It's becoming what God intends it to be. Jesus is ruling and reigning until he puts his enemies under his feet. So the description will become increasingly a reality and its ultimate fulfillment or perfect form will be in eternity. But these verses have primarily in view this present age, the church. And it's very important that we realize that if we want to understand John's message for us this morning. Now, since we have a little bit longer section this morning, I'm not going to go phrase by phrase through the text, but instead I'm going to give you eight features of the New Jerusalem. Okay? Eight features of the New Jerusalem that we find in these verses. It'll be pretty basic since we can only spend a few minutes on each one, but eight features of the New Jerusalem. Okay? And here's the first one. The first feature of the New Jerusalem that we need to see is the of the New Jerusalem. It's symbolic, not literal. John describes a city coming down from heaven. It has four sides with three gates on each side, and it's made up of jewels and pearls and gold. And it gets measured, and John gives us very specific measurements. All the sides are the same length. They're each 12,000 stadia. A stadion, a single one, is about 607 feet. So 12,000 stadia is about 1,380 miles. That's about the distance from Cleveland to Santa Fe, New Mexico, or from Cleveland to Cancun, if that helps. Okay. Now the height of the city is the same, 12,000 stadia. So it would reach up 1,380 miles as well. And when we get to chapter 22, we'll see that there's one street in this city. And there's a river flowing through the middle of the street. Now, do you think we're supposed to take this literally? If we do, we kind of end up making nonsense out of the text. Imagine a city that is a giant cube 1,380 miles on each side, it stretches the distance from Cleveland to Cancun. Now, you might be able to imagine that, but what about the curvature of the earth? Does the city balance like a top with its center on the ground and all the corners miles up in the air? Or is the center of the city many miles underground instead? Or as dispensationalist John Walverd suggested, is the city suspended in the air over the planet? And how does the city function with only one street? And how does the street work with a river running through it? And what about the height? When you get up as high as what's Harmon Line, which is 62 miles, that's the line that separates Earth's atmosphere from outer space. And you would still be in the bottom 5% of this city. 
when you hit outer space. Where the International Space Station orbits, at that height, you'd still be in the bottom 20% of this city. But interpreting John's vision that way just misses the point entirely. Remember, this is apocalyptic literature. It intentionally communicates with signs and symbols. And where does John get most of his imagery? Hopefully by now you can answer that question. He gets it from the Old Testament. Okay, so when you ignore what John's doing and you try instead to make everything literal, you end up kind of with a ridiculous picture of a city as a cube kind of balancing on the planet like that. Okay, that one's centered over physical Jerusalem. Or you have a center of a city that looks something like this because you're trying to put the tree of life on both sides of the city and uh, both sides of the street, but there's a river in the street and it gets difficult to imagine because that's not the point. The point is the symbols and what John's representing. So let's look at his description and see what he's telling us. And that then leads us to the second feature of the New Jerusalem, the identity of the New Jerusalem. She is the church, the bride of Christ. Now, why do I say that? In verse 9, the angel invites John, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. Now, we know that the bride of Christ is the church. So then in verse 10, the angel carries John to a great high mountain and shows him what? The holy city, Jerusalem. So according to the angel, the holy city, Jerusalem, is the bride, the wife of the Lamb. The new Jerusalem is the church. You might remember John has used this technique several times before in the book of Revelation. Probably the most well-known one is in chapter 5. It's the... the or, four or five, it's the throne room vision. And um, John goes up into the throne room of God and uh, one of the elders comes and John, remember the, there's the scroll and nobody can open it and John's weeping because you know who's gonna open the scroll? And one of the elders comes to John and the elder says to him, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And so John looks and what does he see? The lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Look, there's a lion. And John looks, and there's a lamb. Why? Because the lamb is the lion. Jesus is the lamb of God, and Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. Same thing is happening here. I'll show you the bride, and when John looks, he sees the city. The city is the bride. The church is the bride. The church is the city, the new Jerusalem. The way that John describes the city is intentionally contrasting with the whore from chapters 17 to 19, Babylon. Now remember, we saw that Babylon was a symbol for Jerusalem, physical Old Testament Jerusalem with its temple, Jerusalem that rejected Jesus as Messiah and killed him, Jerusalem that would face God's judgment in A.D. 70. So the contrast here is between the whore and the bride, between old Jerusalem and the new Jerusalem. And John was introduced to them both the same way. When John was shown the old Jerusalem, Babylon, the whore, he was invited, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute. And here John's invited, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. 
When John was shown the old Jerusalem, Babylon, the whore, he was taken to the wilderness to see her. But here, John sees New Jerusalem, the church, from a mountain. Mountains are symbolic for the presence of God in Scripture. Eden was on a mountain, for instance. Mount Sinai, God appeared. Uh, Mount Carmel, he made his presence known. Lots of times that mountains have been uh, symbolic for God's presence. When John sees the old Jerusalem, Babylon, the whore, she's dressed in purple and scarlet and jewels, and she's holding a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immoralities. But when John sees New Jerusalem, the bride, she's dressed in fine linen, bright and pure, and she has the glory of God. So this description of the bride, the New Jerusalem, the church, is a direct contrast to the old Jerusalem, Babylon, those who rejected Jesus. And John's not inventing anything new here. Peter already described the church as a structure that was built So Peter says, as you come to him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, church, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So there, the church is compared to a temple, but it's in the language of a physical structure being built. Or think about how Paul describes the church in Ephesians 2. And as I read this, listen to how well this lines up with some of the descriptions John gives in our text this morning. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So we have the language there of being the dwelling place of God and the foundation being the apostles. And John's not inventing something new when he describes the church in this way. So it should be clear, when John gives us this description of the New Jerusalem, he's describing the church, the Bride of Christ. The third feature of the New Jerusalem in this text is the scope of the New Jerusalem. And that is, it encompasses the full number of the people of God, Old Testament and New, Jew and Gentile. John's description of the city is designed to tell us that this is the full number of the people of God. Now, I mentioned earlier the measurements, right? We read the measurements in the text that John gives of this city. Now, when interpreters try to get literal here, this is an example of how they get themselves into trouble. For example, several Bible translations aiming to be helpful take the measurements and put it into language we can relate to, we can understand. Kind of like I did describing the distance from Cleveland to Cancun, right? So these Bible translations will say that the distance was 1,400 miles or 1,500 miles. But that misses the point because the number 12 is important here. And here we have a city that is 12,000 stadia on each side, walls 144 cubits thick, 12 gates, and 12 foundations. Those numbers are important. They're all based on the number 12. 12, 12,000 is 12 times 1,000. And 1,000 in scripture, just a really big number. So we're talking about a really big number that has to do with 12. 
144 is the, the, the wall thickness. That's 12 times 12. And then we have the, the 12s themselves as well. Well, why 12? What's significant about that number? In the Old Testament, the people of God were made up of the 12 tribes of Israel. So when God wanted to symbolize the nation, he used the number 12. So if you walked into the tabernacle, if you were a priest, on the table of showbread, there were 12 loaves of bread there in the presence of the candle, candle the candlestick, because Israel was in God's presence. That was the idea there. Those 12 loaves symbolized the people. Or think about when, um, when they crossed over the Jordan River into Canaan. What did they do? They set up 12 stones as a memorial because those tw the 12 represents the 12 tribes. And when we get to the New Testament, what does Jesus do? He gathers around himself 12 disciples, a new version of the 12 tribes, okay, 12 apostles who represent the people of God, the church. And in John's vision here, the whole city is made up of measurements that indicate the fullness of the people of God, which makes sense because this is the church. It's the bride of Christ. It's Jews and Gentiles all together, all who have faith in Christ. The 12 gates specifically have the names of the 12 tribes. And the 12 foundations have the names of the 12 apostles. So we have Old Testament and New Testament. Just like we read in Ephesians 2, the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, the 12 jewels that are mentioned should bring to our mind the 12 stones on the breastplate of the high priest in the Old Testament. Each stone represented one of the tribes. And then we have... The gates in the New Jerusalem are made of pearl. Not just pearl, but each gate is a pearl. Okay? Now that should bring our mind to the parable that Jesus told about the kingdom of heaven. And by the way, when he told this, this was after he had pulled the disciples aside. So it's the disciples who are hearing this, one of whom is John. Okay? The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So the kingdom of heaven is associated there with a pearl. Or we might remember then, as you think about it, because where, where are the pearls in the New Jerusalem? It's the gates, okay? You might think of what Jesus said in Luke 13. People will come from east and west, from north and south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. It's talking about people from all over the place. And so the kingdom of God is associated with a pearl and with people coming from all four directions. So when you get to Revelation 21 and you see that the New Jerusalem has gates on all sides made of pearl, that's where our mind should go. So Christ's kingdom is associated with pearls, with the four points of the compass. John picks that up here in his description in Revelation 21. But Notice what John does. You would expect that the jewels would correspond to the Old Testament tribes because the jewels were on the breastplate of the high priest and that the pearls would correspond to the New Testament apostles. But John mixes and matches them. So the pearls are the gates and the gates are named for the Old Testament tribes. And the jewels are the foundation and the foundation is, is named for the apostles. 
It's as if John is emphasizing the fact that you can't distinguish them. This is one people of God, undivided. It's the bride of Christ. All right, the fourth feature of the New Jerusalem that we need to notice is its shape. It's a cube. The measurements given are that it's 12,000 stadia on its length, its width, and its height. So it's a cube. And this is important, and some of you have heard me say this before, because there's only one other cube in the whole Bible. And what is it? It's the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle and the temple. That's the only other cube in all of Scripture. The Holy of Holies is the innermost part of the temple, where the, the place where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. It's the place where God was said to dwell. No one was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies except the high priest, and he could only go in once a year and not without taking blood or atonement to sprinkle on the Ark. And the purpose of that was to atone for the sins of the people. But think about this. The New Jerusalem is a cube. So now the whole New Jerusalem, the whole city is the Holy of Holies. The whole city is God's dwelling place. Remember what we saw last week as the city came down out of heaven, the loud voice from the throne in verse 3 said, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. If you read through the Old Testament, you will hear that promise over and over and over. Why? Well, there was an issue. Right back in the first couple of pages of Scripture in the Garden of Eden, man's sin caused a separation between God and man. So in the Garden of Eden, God walked and talked with man, but when man sinned, man had to leave God's presence. He had to leave God's dwelling place. And God put angels at the entrance to guard it so that no man could enter. Well, the Holy of Holies symbolized the same thing. There were cherubim over the ark and there were, there were angels on the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple, symbolizing that angelic guard to God's presence. And then Jesus, through his death on the cross, opened the way to God. When Jesus died, the veil in the temple was torn open. Christ is our great high priest who goes in and atones for our sins in God's presence. So the author to Hebrews puts it this way, Hebrews 9.24, Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, like the physical temple, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. And since our sins have been permanently atoned for, we've now been given the righteousness of Christ. Now we can enter God's presence. And so the next chapter in Hebrews says, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, what should we do? Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. 
And so now John gives us a picture of the new Jerusalem with gates guarded by angels, just like Eden and the Holy of Holies. But now we are allowed to enter. All of those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life, those whose sins are atoned for, are able to enter and be in God's presence. The fifth feature of the New Jerusalem is that there's no physical temple, but instead the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are the temple. The Old Testament prophets, like Ezekiel, prophesied about God's glory leaving the temple, the physical temple, and then returning to a new temple. And what that was picturing was the church, the new temple that would be God's dwelling place. When Jesus arrives on the scene, one of the things that he teaches is that he himself is the replacement for the physical temple in Jerusalem. He says this in John 2, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So after Jesus rose from the dead and ascended to sit at the right hand of God the Father, he poured out the Spirit on his people, the church, at Pentecost, and the Spirit points us to Jesus. The Spirit brings to remembrance things that Jesus taught. So now Jesus, God himself, has his dwelling place in us, the church, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And that means that we are now the temple of God. We are God's dwelling place. So the new Jerusalem, the bride, the church, is the dwelling place of God. It's the temple. And John says that the new Jerusalem has no temple because the temple is God and the Lamb, Jesus. And God's dwelling place is in us, the church. When you hear Christians teaching that someday in the future there will be a rebuilt temple in Jerusalem, they've seriously misunderstood scripture. There will be no future physical temple because God is the temple and he dwells in his people, the church, the new Jerusalem. There's no need for a physical temple again because the final sacrifice has been offered. Jesus offered himself on the cross as the final payment for sin. And to suggest that we will someday go back to a physical temple is to demean and devalue the work of Jesus, the Messiah. The temple promises, the temple symbols, all of that is fulfilled in Jesus and in the church, the New Jerusalem. The sixth feature of the New Jerusalem is that the light of the New Jerusalem is the Lamb. There's no sun or moon because the glory of God gives its light. And the lamp that shines out that light is the Lamb himself, Jesus. Now John's picture here is drawn from Isaiah chapter 60. Last week, you'll remember, we were in Isaiah in a couple different places because John's pulling from Isaiah's language and imagery to describe this. And he does that again this week in Isaiah 60. So Isaiah 60 says this, and again, listen to how closely this tracks with Revelation 21. 
Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you, and nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. So the Lord's glory will be seen in his people, and nations will come because of it. That sounds a lot like John's description of the New Jerusalem. Later in the same chapter, in Isaiah 60, we read this. The sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light. So the Lord will be the light, and God's glory will be seen. Now remember who the author of Revelation is. It's John. If we go to John's Gospel... Here's what we find. Jesus as the light. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's John 1. In John 8, John records this. Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then in John chapter 12, Jesus says, I have come into the world as a light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. So it's no surprise when we get to Revelation 21 that John identifies Jesus as the light of the new Jerusalem. Now, also remember what Jesus had told his followers. This is Matthew 5. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. So there... Jesus compares his followers to both a city and a light, okay, the light that's in the city. So just like with the temple, we have this very close association where Jesus himself is the light, but then so are his people, the church, the bride, the new Jerusalem, the city on the hill. The seventh feature of the new Jerusalem in this text this morning is that the dominion of the new Jerusalem is over the nations. The glory and honor of the nations are brought into the new Jerusalem. So we've just been looking at how John got some of his imagery from Isaiah chapter 60. If we stay there in Isaiah 60, there's more that helps us here. Look at verses 5 and 6 from Isaiah 60. The abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. There you see the wealth and glory of the nations coming to Jerusalem. A few more samples from the same chapter. This is verse 9 and then verse 11. For the coastlands shall hope for me, the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from afar, their silver and gold with them. For the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has made you beautiful. Your gates shall be open continually, day and night they shall not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations with their kings led in procession. That sounds a lot like what John is saying about the new Jerusalem. The gates perpetually open, the wealth and glory of the nations streaming into the new Jerusalem. 
And there really are so many other passages that I could take you to this morning that would show you the same thing in different ways. The nations being drawn to come to the new Jerusalem with their glory and their honor being given to the Lamb. And it's important, too, that we notice here that the nations haven't disappeared. It's not that national identity or ethnicities or cultures have all been absorbed into one big blob, like the Borg in Star Trek, or one big vanilla collective. No, they are still distinct nations with their own kings and cultures. But they're all coming to the New Jerusalem to bring their glory and honor. See, this is what the growing kingdom of Christ looks like. As the gospel progresses in the world, over time, nations will be transformed. The character of the nations will change to become God-honoring. It's not that their cultures disappear, but their laws and their traditions and every aspect of their culture is transformed to align with the kingdom of Christ. Their rulers rule, as Romans 13 describes, as servants of God representing him. That's what the future of this world holds. It may not be in our lifetime. It may take 10,000 years or more until it happens. But that's the picture John is painting. The nations bringing their glory and honor to the Lamb. The eighth and final feature of the New Jerusalem we want to take note of this morning is the citizens of the New Jerusalem. They are the ones whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. John mentioned this book once before, back in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, where he says that everyone will worship the beast, that is, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. But it's important to note, the names are written in this book before the foundation of the world. This is the sovereignty of God in salvation. If you're a believer in Jesus, then your name was written in that book before you ever did anything. And that tells you that you contributed nothing to your salvation. God didn't save you because you were good or because of something you did or because you were smarter or more polite or more obedient or more talented. No, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And all who are saved are saved by his gracious choice alone. Your name written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. The Garden of Eden was a perfect place, undefiled by sin. But Adam, who was put in charge of the garden, allowed the serpent to come in. Verse 27 tells us here in Revelation 21 that in the New Jerusalem, nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Why? Jesus, the second Adam, will guard this city. He determines who enters and who does not. And only the righteous may enter. Now, I'm righteous. Not because I'm righteous in and of myself. I'm righteous only because Jesus has paid for my sins. And he's dressed me in his righteousness. So I belong in the new Jerusalem based on the gracious work 
of Jesus on my behalf. And by the way, connecting this back to the previous point, if nations walk by the light of the Lamb and the kings of the earth bring their glory into it, then that means that those kings must have their names written in the Lamb's book of life. And their nations are walking according to the light of the Lamb. As Psalm 119 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. The only possible explanation here then is that the nations are walking in the light of God's word. The nations are obeying God's word. That's what the future holds someday with kings whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Well, when we put all that we've seen in this passage together, what do we find? We find that the church increasingly is the new Jerusalem. Okay, the church increasingly is the new Jerusalem. It's true already that the church is the new Jerusalem. John's description is true in principle. And the reality of it is growing. Like the mustard seed that's growing into the great plant. Or like yeast in a lump of dough that's slowly working its way through the whole lump. Or like the stone in Daniel's vision that as it rolls becomes a great mountain filling the whole earth. This vision of the new Jerusalem gives us a great gift. It, it paints a picture for us of what God's design for the church is. It gives us something to aim at, something to guide our thinking, something to shape our understanding of who we are as the church, the bride of Christ. So how do we put it to use? What do we do with it? Let me give you three things. First, remember what John says about who belongs there's a clear line in the sand. Only those whose names are in the Lamb's book of life belong. The rest are excluded. So which category are you in? Do you belong to Jesus? Have you trusted him to save you from your sin and from its consequences? This city is in the shape of a cube because it's the holy of holies and only those who are holy may enter. Not holy with your own righteousness, but with the righteousness of Christ given to you as a gift. Are you dressed in his righteousness? If not, then the invitation this morning is for you to repent of your sins and to turn to Jesus, to submit to him and to follow him. The second thing that we can put this passage to use with this morning is this. When you think of yourself as part of the church, the bride of Christ, do you care about the things that God cares about? Do you value the fact that you are the temple of the living God? Do you live with that fact in mind? Do you care about the holiness of that temple? Do you remember that you are the light of the world? Do you let your light shine so that those around you may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven? Do you reflect well the glory of Christ to this world? And then the third thing, do you have the same vision for the world that Christ does? He's ruling and reigning. He's putting all of his enemies under his feet. He's sent us into the world 
to disciple the nations, Matthew 28, that's the Great Commission. Not to Americanize the nations, but to disciple them. So in our own nation, do you think about your expectations for your neighborhood and for your community and your state and your nation in terms of what a discipled nation should look like? A nation whose rulers bring their glory and wealth to honor Christ. What would it look like if our nation walked in the light of God's word? What would be different about our rulers and what would be different about us, the citizens? What would be different about our laws and our institutions and our education and our sports and our entertainment? Do you have the same vision for the world that God does? Not that all nations are blended into one vanilla people group, but that the nations as nations would honor God and bring their glory to the Lamb. And how can you pursue that in your small corner of the world? Young people, as you decide what you will spend your life doing, How will you further the kingdom of God by the power of God's spirit? Will you seek to do that? Or will you just seek your own pleasure and comfort? This vision of the new Jerusalem should shape our thinking and our actions in the world. May God grant us the grace to see ourselves as he does, to see his kingdom and his rule, and to live wholeheartedly as citizens of the new Jerusalem. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this vision of the new Jerusalem that John has painted for us. I pray that we would take what we have seen to heart. That your vision for your church would be our vision too. That we would care about the things you care about. That we would care about holiness. That we would care about your glory and your honor and that we would have a desire to see the people of this world, to see all of the nations coming to honor you. Teach us how to do that in our tiny corner of the world where you have placed us. We pray this this morning in the name of Jesus. Amen.